Hello, listeners. This is Jenny Werner. Rocio Mendez, Fran da Silvera, and I recorded this conversation on May 18, 2020. On May 25th, George Floyd was killed by police in Minneapolis. On May 26th, protests against police brutality and racism began across the United States. On May 27th, Tony McDade was killed by police in Tallahassee, Florida, while in police custody. These two deaths were preceded by the death of Breonna Taylor in March, killed by police while she slept in her home, and Ahmad Arbery, killed by white supremacists while out on a jog in Georgia in February. These deaths follow a long line of racially motivated violence, which we can draw all the way back to 1619. The lives and deaths of these four plus so many more have been at the center of Black Lives Matter protests around the world and a national move to reckon with the racist and white supremacist systems at play in the U.S. Before we launch into the conversation that we had on May 18th, Rocio Fran and I wanted to take a moment together. So, so much has happened in the last couple of weeks and in many ways it feels like a lot of Americans are having conversations that they have never had before. And I wanted to start just by talking about what's standing out to you about what's happening right now, good or bad. Yes, thank you so much um, for rejoining us and giving us the opportunity to, to speak about this. Um, I think it would have been a disservice to not um, mention it or talk about it, um, both for the theater and for like the country as a whole. Um, I want to say a couple, two things, because we, we could go on forever, but I want to just make two specific points. And one kind of thing I've been noticing that I, I think is sort of considered a negative is um, people focusing on like sort of superficial um, on the surface things and not digging deep and asking the question why. Um, I guess how I'd like to say it is like, um, instead of putting band-aids on something, how about we dig deep and like look into what's like causing the disease um, and, and really asking why. Um, and I will go on a limb and do an example of the looting and the rioting. You know, I don't like it. I think it's terrible. I don't think anyone deserves that. But I'm not just being like, hey, looters, you know, get out of here. I'm like, why are you looting? What is causing that looting to happen? Um, the same with crime in general. Crime, I don't just like look at the crime and say, you know, oh, that, that really sucks that he, she, or whomever did this crime, but why is that crime happening? Why are they stealing? Why are they killing? You know what I mean? Like in general as a whole, we have to start asking why and start figuring that out and solving those problems to prevent them from happening. Um, so those are conversations um, I think are really important to have. And I hope people realize that, you know, we need to dig deep and it's hard and, and we, and we, and we, and we got to do it. 
because if not, it's just going to keep happening over and over and over again. Um, and the second thing that I've been noticing happening is I feel like, honestly, for the first time, there is a more amplified voice being out there for the Black and Brown community. Um, I feel like people are really stepping up their game and really asking questions and doing what they have to do to feel like they're getting involved in helping um, the cause. And I think people are also figuring out that like, if we do address these issues, it's the better, it's the betterment for all of us as a whole in the world. It's not, it's not a negative for anybody. Like the world will be better once we tackle racism as a whole not just better for brown and black people, like every single person in this world, you know? Um, and that's what I have to say. <laughs> I, th I think you're so right, Rocio, um, about the, so, so much of that, the, you know, the, um, the fact that if racism is addressed, because we know that racism impacts such a large, such a huge number of people um and the if if we can find equity in our world that is that will impact so many people and i think you know even what you're talking about with the the looting and violence the things that that people are pointing to and saying like well you know this is this is bad because this is happening i think if if it weren't for all of the protests that are happening right now, there are so many things that are changing right now that we wouldn't be seeing. You know, we are seeing um, people uh, like the the four policemen in Minneapolis and arrested, which I honestly don't know if that would have happened without these protests. Um, the you know there is a lot of conversation about addressing systemic problems in police departments again i don't think that that would be happening without this without the protests and without the 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 um sort of national and international scope of them also um and i know that you know there's so much more to uncover and so many more things to be addressed but it does feel like steps are, are t being taken to try and make significant change. Yeah, I definitely agree that the conversation feels um, more present in this moment um, and, and voices have been amplified. Um, but I think I would also want to recognize that these are conversations that have been happening um, for a very long time. Um, and there are resources that have been available for a very long time and people whose life work this is. And, um, you know, the, the idea of defunding the police, which I feel like is, is the, most pressing matter right now, um, politically and socially, like that's not something that has just come up out of nowhere. <laughs> um, and, and it's work that has 
it's the it's been the work of a lot of people that have sort of like led us to this moment um so that we are we have been able to um to provide all of this knowledge um and all of those resources and all of you know the article like it's it's the work of so many people that have made the dissemination of that um a lot easier right now so just recognizing because i feel like there there does seem to be a newness about all of this um of of what's going on and and maybe it's it's a newness of who's having these conversations um and what you know what circles they're they're be, being had at um and it feels like it's infiltrated everywhere right now which i think is very necessary and something that is different um than what's happened in the past. And, and what has to happen after these conversations is action, mm -hmm. right? It's not enough to just have the words. So we can look at actions that we personally can take, um, you know, conversations that we can, sometimes conversations are action. Um, I know I've had a lot of conversations with some family in places where they have, they 100% have not had these conversations before. Um, however, conversation isn't enough. So we're all theater artists. Um, are there actions that theaters and theater artists should be taking that we're, that we're thinking about taking as theater artists? Um, uh, what do you think the next step is in this for theater? Um, sort of taking from what Fran just said, we have been having really long, really tough conversations in theater about giving opportunities to people of color to be in higher level positions in running theater companies. Um, and I think it's really, really, really important to give these opportunities to more people of color um, to make sure that there are amplified voices and like diverse thinking um, within these theater companies. Because I personally, you know, I'm an actor and a theater artist to inspire and to reflect society and to like change it for the better um and i don't think you're gonna get there if you don't have different thinkers in the room and different perspectives and different viewpoints you need to be challenged you need to be questioned um you need to ask why am i doing this show and who am i casting it it's not enough just to have people on the stage. They need to be the directors and the creative team. They need to be in the administration team. Like, it needs to be everywhere. Um, and that's what I would say about, I mean, personally, as an artist, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I'm doing my own action, um, <clears throat> going to protest, talking to people, giving an ear, starting conversations, um, you know, voting, <laughs> whatever I can do. <laughs> um, 
and and doing what I can to do kind of like artist activism, you know. Um, yeah, that's that's. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's so important. The artist activism is crucial, but the first thing you said is also crucial. You know, I think as uh, theaters, we have to really investigate who the gatekeepers are to the stories that we're telling. And I acknowledge I am saying this as a white woman who's a literary director, which is the traditional sort of gatekeeper of the regional theater. Um, but we have to examine that. What does that, what, who's controlling the narratives um, that we're sharing? And I think it really starts with, um, with theater companies um, thinking about that, that very thing, who, where are the, um, the leaders of color in our institutions, the people of color, you know, I think it's, it, it's critically important um, that we not be, you know, um, theaters that are trying to produce stories that reflect a more diverse community than our theaters are. Yes. Um, I, I heard somebody say the other day that um, we have to stop talking about um, culturally specific theaters used to be sort of the, like the category for theaters that are, um, that are doing work for a specific audience. And it, that usually meant like a black theater or a Latinx theater, but you know, white theaters are doing work a lot of times for a culturally specific audience. And um, we need to change that. Yeah. Um, I also just want to throw in, um, because I've seen this happen, um, and it's happened to me personally, where there's this um, notion to be like, well, is that Black person qualified to do the job? And I challenge people who ask that question, are they asking them that question for their white competitors? Are they qualified for the job? Do you ask, do you ask that same question for both because I don't think it, it is asked. I think there's a higher standard we're put up on that is totally uncalled for and is, and, uh, you know, is a part of systemic racism. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So I'll, I'll leave it there. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I think as we, as all of us um, around the country do this work, not just as theaters and theater artists, but you know, particularly white people um, need to be ready to be held accountable um, mm -hmm. and to, to be actively standing up against racism and actively trying to break these things down. And, um, and that's what I am, you know, absolutely hoping that we're willing to be held accountable. I am willing to be held accountable. I hope a lot of other people are um, ready to listen and to make significant change yeah i would i would hope as well that for for everyone to sort of know um that nothing is being done with malice in this moment holding people accountable is not being done with malice calling people out is also not being done with malice and we're seeing a lot of that right now um, and the, the specificity with which um, institutions and, and theater makers um, 
are being called out. It's no one is doing this to be mean. <laughs> um, I think it's it it is a it is a breaking point, um, and it is a revolutionary moment. And in order for for a revolution to succeed, there needs to be specificity um, in order to actually be able to interrogate um, where the problems lie. Um, so that's, <laughs> for, I think everyone needs to, to walk with compassion um, and to know that there, there, there have been people who have had a lot of compassion for a very long time um, and a lot of patience for a very long time to let a lot of things go and a lot of things slide. But we are at a, a moment where there is no more secrecy and there is no more doing that. And is there anything else we want to say? Anything else you want to communicate? Um, again, I just want to thank you for jumping in on this opportunity with us and recognizing that it was important to actually have a conversation and address what's happening in the nation. Because again, as theater artists, this is another kind of way to activate the movement and making change. It's making sure um, your listeners and subscribers have an understanding and um, feel um, empowered to stand with you. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank you both for taking these a uh, few minutes to talk about something that is, you know, a much larger conversation. And I hope that our listeners um, recognize that none of us are trying to speak as experts, um, <laughs> but that we are, <laughs> we're all in this moment together. Um, and, uh, and, you know, trying to be accountable and be held accountable and to take active steps to, um, to, to make a difference. So thank you. From Jiva Theatre Center in Rochester, New York, this is Out of the Rehearsal Hall. Theatre is an art form that celebrates togetherness. Since we can't be together right now, we're reaching out to theatre makers around the country to see how they're doing, what they're doing, and what they're looking forward to returning to when we get back into our rehearsal halls. My name is Jenny Werner, and I'm Jiva's literary director and resident dramaturg. Each episode will feature a Jiva stage manager and their favorite rehearsal room calls, and I'll be joined by another Jiva staff member for a conversation with a theater maker about their life out of the rehearsal hall. Actors, please stand by for the top of the show. This week, I'm joined again by Fran Dasilvera, Jiva's assistant literary director. Fran, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me back. Absolutely. So last time that you co-hosted, we talked about how you got into the field of theater and dramaturgy. But I'm wondering today if you would share something about a production where you felt you had a really significant role to play as a dramaturg. Uh, yeah, which is a, a very difficult question. <laughs> 
I know, I know, I know, but I'm telling you, this is not a podcast for softball questions. We're asking the hard questions in this one. All right, I'm ready. Um, I, there are so many to choose from, but I would have to say that it's my first experience working one-on-one with a playwright um, at Company One Theater, which is where I worked before Juba in Boston. Um, they have a play lab program, which is a, it has a series of different ways to help emerging writers, local writers in Boston. Um, and one part of that program is a fellowship. So they choose three playwrights to sort of help develop a full-length play throughout um, the year. And my first uh, year working with Company One um, as a dramaturg, I was paired with one of those uh, fellows. Um, which was my my first real experience diving in one-on-one with a playwright. Um, And the writer that I got to work with that year um, is named Liana Asim. um, And the play that she wrote, which was wonderful, called The King of Love is Dead, um, which was about a Black family living in 1968 in the city. Um, and their struggle to sort of keep their family together in the midst of all the riots and cor- corruption and um, all of the things that we sort of remember 1968 to be about. Um, and it's told through the perspective of the youngest son. Um, and it was a, a memorable experience because this, this play was was huge. <laughs> it was a behemoth of a play. I think there were at least like 20 characters there were oh my so goodness! Scenes. Yeah, it was it was incredible. And I, you know, when I got this assignment, um, and because it was my first year with Company One, I was sort of like, oh, okay, <laughs> please <laughs> throw me into, you know, throw me into the lion's den. Um, but it was such an incredible experience working with Liana because she has this incredible ability to create worlds and to develop characters, and to, she literally created an entire town. Um, and so you, you kind of feel like you're reading a novel, you get so immersed in it. Um, but my job as the dramaturg was to uh, bring it from novel to theater, um, mm-hmm. from you know the imagination to the stage. And so we had to figure out together how to really massage the play and narrow and cut and cut and cut some more (laughs) um so that was you know like because we were working so closely together throughout that year we really developed a relationship with one another um and that sort of experience made me realize how important that um the relationship between playwright and dramaturg is um and how you really can together um go through this really incredible process of taking a play and bringing it to, you know, such a wonderful direction. Um, And so that, you know, that experience was wonderful. That's great. That's such a, it's important. Those, those processes where you really develop a real relationship with the artist that you're working with. Yeah. And they put so much trust in you. Yeah, which I think is, you know, is such a gift as a dramaturg when you, when your playwright trusts you, um, and so they're able to, um, I think, take bolder risks in the in 
that process um, and to experiment. And even if, you know, in the end, that experiment is not incorporated into the final product, at least that experience of doing it will definitely have influence um, where that play goes. Well, we're going to chat today with Rocio Mendez, who is an actor and a fight and intimacy director. And I'm curious if you can think of shows you've worked on where fight choreography played a really big role. Um, I actually haven't um, worked on any shows that had big fight choreography scenes, Um, but I have worked on a show that had a lot of dance choreography in it. <laughs> I know those are two different. It's things. a little different. <laughs> <laughs> a little different. Um, but that was uh, "Wake Out" by Terrell Alvin McCraney, um, uh-huh. which we did in my last year at Company One. Um, and there are so many like big ball scenes in that that needed to be so carefully choreographed. So that it was right. great to watch what that process was. But for by choreography, um, I'd probably say "The Niceties" was the first show. Um, that I got to witness the full process um, of seeing that. Yeah. Uh, We did, at Jiva, we did a couple of years ago, we did Noel Coward's Private Lives, um, which if you know the play, the second act is really built around this enormous fight scene where, you know, the apartment that they're in basically is torn apart and everything is a weapon. Um, And for me, it was so fun to watch how storytelling through fight um, was kind of developed and and how how you think about what the story of the fight is. Um, it was a it was really fun. David Leong was the fight choreographer for that. And it was just sort of incredible to see um, yeah, just that the creation of a different kind of storytelling. Yeah, I have so much respect for fight choreographers. Yeah. Um, because they sort of have to monitor every single moment and monitor the bodies of the actors and um, think spatially in a way that I feel like um, is not, you know, inherent to a lot of other design elements. Um, And they also have to sort of predict what the body could do or might do at any given moment that could change the the choreography and sort of plan in that way, um, which I think, you know, is incredible. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, they have to, they have to plan both the action and the reaction, you know, because we're not actually seeing someone, you know, the impact of someone being hit. So you have to create that. That's, that's what makes the belief possible. So it's, I think, really fascinating. And then intimacy uh, direction is a relatively new field, I think, um, in the theater, in American theater anyway, um, and really kind of came out of this desire to protect actors when they're doing a scene that requires physical intimacy, because it is such a vulnerable thing for an actor to do. Um, Have you worked on a show with an intimacy director? I have not. um, And I think that's because it's such a new role. Because it's so new. Yeah. yeah. Well, and for me, the first time that I worked on a show with an intimacy director was this past season when we did Madri Shaker's play Queen. Uh, Jace Meyer Crosby was the intimacy choreographer. And it was really fascinating for me to watch him work with the actors um, 
and really similar, I think, in so many ways to fight choreography. So it makes a lot of sense that um, someone would do both of these things. Yeah, I think understanding the body and um, also understanding what we're asking our actors to do um, with their bodies. Um, And I think theaters are really taking more responsibility for that uh, by hiring uh, fight and intimacy coordinators. Um, I think the the most important thing is making sure that our actors are comfortable and are safe. Um, And the fact that there is, that there is, someone now whose role uh, is to have their eyes on that and have their minds on that at all times. is, is great um, because, you know, directors, directors might, and they should, but they also have to have their eyes and hands on every other element of um, the production. So. Well, let's, let's tell everybody a little bit about Rocio. Uh, as we said, Rocio is an actor and fight and intimacy director and a teaching artist who was born and raised in Hell's Kitchen, New York City. Rocio has worked with great theater companies such as The Atlantic, The Kitchen, Jiva Theater Center, Rattlestick, The Flea, The Pearl, American Globe, The Shakespeare Theater of New Jersey, The Classical Theater of Harlem, and The Brick. She has been in various short and independent films and TV that have been featured on networks such as MSNBC and PBS. She won Best Supporting Actress for her role as Camilla in the film Coffee and a Donut at the Festival of Cinema. Rocio has staged and coordinated fights for Off and Off Off Broadway, as well as independent films. She was a nominee for the New York Innovative Theater Arts Award for Outstanding Choreography Movement for Hearts Like Fist and Marianne or the True Tale of Robin Hood with Flux Theater Ensemble. She's a team member of Uncle Dave's Fight House, a collective of fight and intimacy directors serving off and on Broadway productions and films. And Rocio teaches a stage combat undergraduate course at the New School University and is a teaching artist working with students ages 13 through 18 throughout New York City. What do you say? Shall we call Rocio? Let's do it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. We're at Places for Top of Show. Places for Top of Show. Rocio, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Oh, my God. Thank you so much for having me on. This is so exciting. It's really great. And I know, you know, we were really looking forward to having you at Jiva this spring. In fact, the show that you were going to be working on would be open right now. I know. Um, but we're going to have to hope that we, we have another opportunity down the line. I really, I really, really do hope so. Yeah, me too. So as a way of introduction, I always like to ask how you, when when did you know that you were going to have a career in theater or wanted a career in theater? Um, well, like many of us, I, um, I started young and I took a little bit of a a gap though, because I went to performing arts, both junior high and high school. Um, and then um, when I sort of like changed my mind in college for some weird reason, I was, I guess that like little saboteur in my ear was kind of just like, you probably can't make it in the arts, like do speed else. So I was thinking of like public administration or um, something gearing more towards law. That's like kind of my family's trajectory, a lot of politics and 
um, nonprofit work and um, public-based work. So I was like thinking about doing that. And then I had an awful experience in college. So I dropped that. And in my mid twenties, I decided to be the arts again. <laughs> Um, and <laughs> I just decided to, to just go to like a quick, you know, um, program that was intense. I, I went to AMDA, um, and, you know, and there it's, I just knew it was the right path for me. I was just like, this, this is it. This is, I should never have given it up in the first place. And I was happy it returned. And, and now I'm here. Now, did you take a fight direction class? Um, in this program or how did you come to yeah it was it was a requirement it was um a requirement to take stage combat and that's yeah that's how I got into it you know I'm really lucky that I came from a movement background I had gymnastics multiple types of dance and martial arts already under my belt um so movement was always very easy for me and I'm lucky that I had um a wonderful wonderful instructor um her name was Car- or is Carrie Brewer, amazing. And she encouraged me to like kind of pursue it. And I'm going to be honest, I, as a black woman too, I had the concept of being a fight choreographer 15 years ago was like not even in my brain. I didn't think it was a possibility to be honest that, you know what I mean? Like, I just thought I was good at it at stage combat and I liked it. Um, so I'm really happy that this woman encouraged me after I graduated to like kind of follow her around. I assisted her in a bunch of stuff and like just, you know, serendipitously the ball just ended up rolling and I just started getting kind of my own clients and building relationships and taking more classes and getting better at the craft and eventually just evolved into this like really cool 10 year career of fight choreography. I feel like I got really lucky. I'm sure that it's uh, it's about your talent. It's not about luck, and it's about you know hard work. Um, but I, how? Say a little bit more about why you thought that as a black woman, um, fight choreography was not a field for you. What was what was that about? Um, I grew up on martial arts films and like action films for my dad. So like I you know, the old school, like, John claude Van Damme and, you know, Stephen Seagal and, like, (laughs) Arnold Schwarzenegger. And these were, like, my idols, you know, because they were my dad's idols. So, like, I loved watching them and um, even Bruce Lee and stuff. But first of all, none of these people are female. Um, The first actually was probably um, in Terminator 2. Of course, I'm blanking on Linda... um, Linda, oh my God, why am I forgetting her name? This is like one of my favorite people of all time. We'll, we'll figure it out. But that was the first time I even seen a woman like be badass, you know, on the screen. So even though I loved it, the concept of me doing it wasn't there because I didn't see people like me doing it. You know, <laughs> I'm mentioning all men and like one white female. You know what I mean? Linda so- Hamilton? Linda, Linda Hamilton. Hamilton. Yes, Linda Hamilton. I can't believe it. Like that. I love her so much. Um, she's so great and was kind of like one of the first inspirations for me to be like, I could be badass hopefully one day, you know? Um, and, and of course now we're having a bunch of women of color on the screen. It's changing now. Thank God. I thought I was going to be the first, but... <laughs> <laughs> 
I am doing it, but just like the theater. <laughs> and uh, um, so I just didn't, it just didn't occur to me that it was a possibility. You know what I mean? Like if you're not presented with your options, you don't know what your options are. You know what I mean? So I just didn't think it was possible. Um, I needed to be, you know, kind of encouraged and told that it is a possibility. Um, and then once I realized it was a possibility, though, I was like, there's no stopping like I'm going to be a fight choreographer and I'm going to work hard to do it. You know what I mean? Like once that was put in my ear, it was, it was done for. Yeah. And, and are there plays, specific plays that you think that's a play that I need to choreograph the fight in? Um, well, one of them was being gone. <laughs> <laughs> Which was the play that you would have been at Jiva doing right now. Yeah, um, I actually trained with Kui Wen for quite a while, um, was really inspired by him. So I was really excited to like feel kind of like this full circle moment because this was like, you know, 10, 12 years ago when I started training with him for Absolutely. quite a while. So I was really excited to, for that. But um, other plays that I can, you know, I really would love to do some really hardcore like Shakespeare thing, actually, like, I don't know, Titus Andronicus or something like that, where it's like just a bunch of dudes wailing on each other and battle scenes. Like, I would love the opportunity to choreograph something like that. Yeah, I, I you know, I, the closest I got was a, a comedy by um, Flux Theater Ensemble, Marion or the True Tale of Robin Hood. I did a couple years ago. There was like a huge battle scene between you know, um, Robin Hood and, and the other evil guards and stuff. And that was a lot of fun, but I would love to do like something in, in classical theater that's similar. I think that would be really fun. Now, are there like certain questions that you generally start off with when you're uh, staging a fight? Well, yeah, of course. I think it's just like any other kind of creative team person you know like similar to the director what's the tone you know what's the style like for example classical theater or uh the geek theater kind of like um Kui Wynn's work like be it gone and stuff or um is it like a brawl you know what I mean is it like a realistic kind of thing um so those are the questions I always ask first and then from there just kind of I kind of just kind of wing it from there you know I like figure out the style and like the storytelling of the whole play as a whole. And then like, I kind of am the microscope that goes really, 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 really small within whatever violence that's in it and see what story I could find within that. But, um, it isn't really, it's a process of like, I also like to, I've learned throughout the years to like meet the actors, know how they move beat the director, know how they think before really getting too detailed about what I want to do, because it doesn't really work if you, for me, and this is for me, of course, my personal thing. I don't think it really works if you just go in there with this idea and that's what it has to be. Um, with physical stuff, I just think um, with fight choreography, that's not going to work. So I do ask the questions of like storytelling and, and tone and, and what it is, but I always go in kind of with like an open mind, open heart that anything could change because I want to see how everyone works in the room. That feels like that's so much about what sort of what you have to do um, to, in order in the rehearsal room in order to create the right kind of, you know, movement that can work for everybody's bodies. I'm sure there are kinds, certain kinds of fighting techniques that wouldn't work um, 
on, you know, with a particular body or a particular kind of mover. Exactly. Yeah. So I have to be in there and figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Now our audiences saw your work in the Royale, which is such a stunning play. It's such a beautiful play. Um, It's so great. Uh, It's for anybody who's listening, who doesn't know the story, it's inspired by the true story of Jack Johnson, who was the first African-American heavyweight boxing champion. Um, And for me, I was amazed at how, how the, um, the physical world of the boxing and fighting is really brought to life, but no one is actually like, they're not, they're not fighting each other. They're not, they're, there's no punches are thrown from one actor to another, right. In that play. Um, can you talk a little bit about your experience working on that play and how, how you tell that story, um, through, through the, the choreography in that? Yeah, sure. Um, our experience was really, really fun. So, of course we knew it was more abstract and the actors weren't actually going to box, but we still developed a vocabulary of boxing so that even though they stomped their foot or like through their shoulder, um, we kind of built this way of what those things represent. So we knew that this meant a punch or this meant a turn or this meant a that, you know what I mean? So that there could be kind of an ebb and flow and, um, a give and take between the two actors who were like boxing, but not boxing, um, which was really fun because the first week of that, we were really boxing and it was, <laughs> we were so much fun. That's great. <laughs> and then we kind of slowly like day after day, like deconstructed it and like kind of actually simplified it and made it like simpler and simpler and, and kind of easier and easier to make it that give and take. And, and again, I'm that type of choreographer who, and that's why I don't like to pre-plan too much because the actors also had these great ideas and ways of moving themselves that were, were brought to the table. And of course, um, Peroni Susato was the director also had like her way. Once we developed that original vocabulary of the actual boxing, um, that I know really well, you know what I mean? Once I was able to transfer that information, we were able to just kind of slowly morph it uh, to what what happened. And I think we we nailed it. <laughs> I think we really did a great job with it. Really yeah, it was such a beautiful production. I know, you know, I know if I could have gone again and again and again, I would have. It was such an incredible, um, incredible production. So thank you for your beautiful work on that show. Yeah, it was really- it was before my time, but I've heard so much about it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Uncle Dave's Fight House and what being a member of that team means? Yeah. Oh, my God. I love the Fight House. Um, the head of it is Uncle Dave himself, David Onsuelo, who is just a lovely, lovely human being. Um, he created the Fight House. Um, First of all, it's all either people of color or LGBTQ, and I'm the first woman identifying person um, in the group. So I'm really proud of that, that we're all like people of color or representing queer people. Um, 
And I think it's fantastic because we're all work so much as freelancers and we have such a niche um, specialty that it's really, really helpful to be a part of this team who could just like help each other out. Like um, there have been some times where I'm just like in a trouble spot and it's really nice that I could call one of the team members, usually Dave, to help me out and even maybe come in and check out the work that I'm doing and, and, and help me through the process and vice versa. But for the most part, um, we also work collectively on like the bigger projects. If we're doing something on or off Broadway, that's really humongous, especially musicals. There's usually two or three of us working on it because it's such an intense process. Um, and it's really helpful because we all, we all work a lot and we're all actors too. So we have auditions. We have those usual kind of things come up where we have this audition here, or we book this thing here. And it's nice that um, we each have like the support to, quickly have a team member come in that's representative of Uncle Dave's Fight House to help us with, with that. Um, it's been really, really rewarding experience working with them. And I think we're just going to keep taking it further and further and further. We just got nominated for a John Desk Award. Um, incredible. Yeah. So we're, we're just like, we're killing it right now. Um, and we will when we're back in the world. When we get to go back to the theater? When we, when we get to go back to the theater, I think our ball will keep rolling and we'll just keep killing it and getting out there and, and working our butts off, you know? And, you know, our, our real, our real, well, I think, I don't know, you know, Dave might say something different, but I love how focused we are on real representation, you know? Um, one of the reasons Dave was really excited to have me on board is because I'm a black woman and it's like he's ran into situations where like, do you have a woman on the team? Do you have a black person on the team? Because people want diversity in the rehearsal rooms. They want the different perspectives um, because if it's just the same kind of perspective, it's like, how far are we going to go? So I think it was really smart for him to bring a team together that is so diverse and um and encouraging people to seek like diversity and representation within the creative process. It's such an important, important decision to, for him to have made. And I think incredible. Um, are there a lot of women and queer people in the fight choreography world? Yeah. I, well, I know, I know a lot of women, um, not at the unfortunate, not at the level I'm, I'm, I'm doing right now. You know, um, I wish there was was more. Like, um, I have not met another queer woman of color who does fight and intimacy. Um, oh wow! Yeah, I've met other. I know of one. I haven't met her yet. Um, I feel like I know a lot because I'm a woman. But in, if you look at like the roster of most of the people doing the on and off Broadway stuff, it's it's men, mostly straight white men. <laughs> it's unconscious bias. People don't realize that like they don't they haven't been trained to think a black woman could do this kind of work. You know what I mean? So because um, they don't see it, you know. Um, but we're but it's changing slowly but surely, and you know we have all these wonderful um, you know arts administration people who are who are coming up now who are who are changing that and are like bringing new people um, who have always been around they just haven't been given the opportunity to do what they do best. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
So you you mentioned uh, another hat that you wear because you wear many wonderful hats, um, and that's uh, being an intimacy director, um, which Jenny and I were talking about earlier about how uh, new it seems to the field um, or how the role itself um, different theater companies are actually including in a design team. Um, so our listeners might not be too familiar with what being an intimacy director means um, and why it's necessary. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, an intimacy director is there to, number one, choreograph any scenes with intimacy, which could include sexual stimulation, um, kissing, a dance, a hug, um, I'm trying to think, nudity, anything that can put the actor in a vulnerable state with intimate situations. And our job is, number one, to choreograph it, number two, to really make sure that you're a liaison between the actor and the director and everything's fully communicated. We unfortunately got into this habit where actors kind of get the last say and are forced to be put in uncomfortable situations which could be traumatic and they're and encouraged not to say anything encouraged to just be silent and be grateful and do what you're asked to do um and we're there to break that habit and kind of get us back in track on like everyone's valuable and boundaries are okay and if you're uncomfortable with something let's talk about it and make sure that we're still doing the story of the play but that everyone's doing it safely um, both physically and psychologically. Uh, so that's what an intimacy director does. And um, I'm so happy I'm doing this work. I, you know, I'm an actor too. And like, I, I, I've thought about past situations where I've done intimate scenes and I think I literally just blocked them out because I don't remember wow. what we did. <laughs> you know, cause it is, a, it, it's extremely uncomfortable. Um, and I'm so glad that I've been trained now to guide <clears throat> both myself and actors and directors um, and producers to um, really take care of each other. You know what I mean? Because it's not just the responsibility of the, you know, the cast, the creative team, but our audiences. We don't want our audiences to be traumatized either. I don't think people understand that, like, Sometimes if they see something they're really uncomfortable, there is like a border. Of course you go to the theater to be uncomfortable, you know what I mean? But there is like a little bit of a line with um, taking care of your audience still and getting to that peak, but making sure you don't fall off the cliff, you know? Um, so that's what we're there for. It's really important work. I'm so glad I do it. Um, since I've been doing it, the sigh of relief that I get from actors when they realize there's an intimacy director there is outstanding. It's like so insane. Um, and like I said, it's even if it's like as simple as like a quick little kiss, they're so happy someone's there to, to guide the actors through that, you know what I mean? And it's been really, really rewarding. I'm really happy I got involved with the work. How long have you been doing that? Two years now. That's great. Yeah. It, I, I've only witnessed one intimacy director at work. Um, and it, it, I think the actors had that exact reaction. They were so thrilled that there was an intimacy director in the room. And it was a huge learning experience for me, um, watching the work happen. Um, and it felt in many ways like the same kinds of conversations were happening 
around intimacy as happen in fight choreography. Um, like the same conversations about the way that your body reacts when someone approaches you and, and that, and how different kinds of movement elicit different responses. Um, and it was really fascinating to me. Are, are there other things that you find doing both intimacy and fight direction um, that are connections between those two fields? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of connection. Um, first off with like, basically every play that I've done with intimacy, there's violence in it, hands down. Um, so it's, it makes sense that these two niches are together a lot and that it's something that a lot of fight directors are pursuing now because they're realizing how intertwined and connected they are. Um, I have to say like 60% of the time, if I'm hired as a fight director, I'm also hired as the intimacy director now. And, you know, I got into this work mostly because I was hired as a, a fight director to do a sexual assault scene. Um, and it's the, a, the play Marisol by Jose Rivera. Oh, yes, and, I love that play. Yeah, I love that play, too. I love it, love it, love it. And, again, it was one of those things. And I said two years, but it's actually been three. I don't – I said – so okay. I apologize about that answer. <laughs> I've actually been doing this work for longer. Time flies, especially right now. Um, um, and when I was doing that play, I was, in, you know, I was kind of interrupted by uh, the producer who was like, we think we're, we're getting up on this intimacy thing. And I have heard of it before and some friends of mine are involved with um, kind of bringing it to light. Um, and and uh, I was really, really happy that I got kind of push into a corner to, to do this because I realized that like, I was actually already using elements of what intimacy directors does, but to get the right vocabulary in my brain to get through a sexual assault scene was like so priceless. You know what I mean? It was just so wonderful to be shown and given that inter information with this intimacy director coming in and us collaborating I mean, being like, man, I got to do this work because I do this a lot, like this kind of violent but intimate situations, you know? So that's what I meant by it's just intertwined a lot, you know? And a lot of the shows I do have both. Um, <clears throat> some of the shows I do have one or the other, you know, there are shows, but it, I feel like it's getting rarer and rarer. Usually we're, we're doing both. And where do you, what kind of training do you, um, can you get in intimacy? direction or choreography? Well, yeah, I, I started training with IDI, Intimacy Directors International, who recently disbanded because their mission has been fulfilled. Um, and I did a few workshops and I still have a mentor. Her name is Claire Warden, who I follow around and assist her with kind of the bigger projects. She's like tier one, I'm like tier two. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's, you know, workshop training. Um, weekend workshops and even have a full 10 day workshop. Um, <clears throat> but it's really, really specific and it's, it's really, it's quite, um, challenging to get certified through now IDC intimacy directors and coordinators. And then it's two separate trainings to do theater and film and TV. It's two completely separate things. It's just like, as a fight director, I do mostly theater, but I don't really do film. It's a completely different beast. Um, unless it's like a, you know, a small martial arts thing, which 
you know, because I'm a martial artist, I, I might be able to do, but like stunt work, I don't do. You know what I mean? So um, they have two separate trainings for that, just similar as a fight director. <clears throat> and it's quite hard, and I'm glad it's hard because um, there's no room for failure. Absolutely no room. Um, people could be put in 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 danger and um, be traumatized if this work isn't done correctly. Um, <clears throat> so I'm really happy and excited that people are, are doing it and taking it really seriously and understanding the benefits and how this world will be better. Not, you know, the best thing about training to be an intimacy director was learning how that <clears throat> I could, I don't even, there's some, you know, aspects of my life where I'm already using some of this training just by my relationships with people outside of acting in theater and stuff. So um, I really think it's gonna help change this industry and change the world, seriously. Yeah, both sound like they require an incredible amount of trust on yeah. both sides. <laughs> so definitely applaud you for taking that on. Um, how, how do you ba balance all of it? Like all of these different hats that that you have and that you wear, and especially since, you know, they, they must influence one another. How, how do you stay sane and healthy yourself? Ooh. Oh, <laughs> child. <laughs> Big question. I <laughs> well, you know, I'm really happy that physical, you know, I'm so happy that I have that aspect you know I've been doing a Muay Thai kickboxing for 10 years now and I'm really happy that you know obviously I can't go to the gym now but you know I have workout videos that I do at home and stuff but but like working out and making sure I'm up on my training is really important to me to just make sure I'm you know physically capable of whatever I demonstrate and whatever I do I think um finding whenever and wherever to relax and have fun has been really important to me as a freelancer it's so easy to get stressed out and um and and it's hard to say no sometimes because you know i'm a freelancer there's some months where like i'm not making any money and then suddenly 10 projects come up and i kind of have to say yes to all of them um and then like with acting i i, I uh, fortunately for me and this isn't everyone but fortunately for me i tend to do more tv film work as a, an actor these the past like two or three years so i'm really happy and feel grateful that like my side hustle trying to get into indie film um and tv is is through my work in theater you know what i mean i still do acting in theater but like i want to kind of shift towards that. So I'm really grateful that that's been my shift. And I think um, balancing is, I mean, I'm still trying to figure it out, you know, and I've been doing it for five years. <laughs> I, Meditate, I, I, meditating. <laughs> I imagine nobody really has that 100% figured out, <laughs> how to balance all of the, the things. Um, are there pieces of advice that you've been given in your career or in your training that have been really useful to you? Don't stop. Keep going. Um, <laughs> oh, one of the, the great, greatest ad advice is actually that yeah, I was just talking about, which like always have like something else, you know, like 
my life doesn't have to be my career. And that was a great piece of advice because it used to be everything a hundred percent, like full throttle all the time. And once I was able to kind of like be like, no, there's time for other things and other interests in like a life, you know, that was really helpful. That, that helped me get the courage to like, I would never travel because I was so scared I would lose out on a gig. But now I've been to 14 countries. You know what I mean? Once I like took that piece of advice and like wow. let myself like experience life and have some fun, um, things really started unfolding for me even more. So I think that was a really great piece of advice. Um, that is great. That's, that's so important. Yeah. And also as a freelancer, I think some so hard to let yourself do, cause you're right. That fear that, you know, you'll have a, a vacation planned and that vacation time is literally taking money out of your pocket in yeah. ways. Cause you can't work during that time. Yeah. Uh, what, what have been your favorite countries to visit? Um, number one is Iceland. Wow. Iceland is amazing. Um, it is out of this world beautiful. It really is like you're on a different... It was the first time I looked at a landscape and started crying. It was, That's wow. how incredibly beautiful it was. I climbed up this high, like one of the highest peak mountains. It was like a two-hour hike. And, and I looked over that cliff and I just started crying. It was so beautiful. Um, I highly recommend it. It is cold, but it's quite fun. And I like camping and outdoorsy stuff. So there's a lot of places to like camp and be outside. Um, another top is um, probably Germany. I really loved Berlin and I love traveling through Germany. Germany was really great. It's really cool out there. Excellent. That, yeah. uh, I did not expect those two in combination <laughs> with each other. Yeah. I've only been to the airport of Iceland <laughs> for like those cheap free flights. <laughs> All right. You know, if you ever have the, here's the trick. Okay. What I've learned is if you're traveling far, take long layovers because I was able to be in Turkey for two days because I was going to Africa and we found a flight that had a two day layover in Turkey. So we were able to hang out in Turkey, find a hostel, hang out in Turkey for two days. You could do that in Iceland. You could just have a long ass layover in Iceland and you could go to the Blue Lagoon and you could go to Reykjavik real quick and like, <laughs> to just go to the real destination you're going to. That's a little, it's a little trick I've learned. So you could do kind of a multi country trip, you know? Perfect. When we when we're allowed to leave our homes again. Yes. <laughs> I forgot about that part. I almost forgot too, Jenny. <laughs> and sorry, the reality. <laughs> Please hold. We're at a break. When we're back, we'll be continuing on attack two. Before we started, all of this social distancing and the coronavirus really kind of hit. You were about to go into tech with Flux Theater Ensemble, which is a theater company that um, I really love. Um, and uh, so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the company and about your role in the, the play that you were working on. Yeah, I also love Flux Theater Ensemble. They are just fabulous, fabulous group of people. Um, and their, their mission is something like to bring 
long-term collaboration between actors, directors, designers, and other theater developers in New York City to just build long-lasting relationships with collaborators in New York City to bring off-off-Broadway and off-Broadway work. Um, this is the third, no, more than that, fourth production. I've worked with them on, oh God, three or four. <laughs> and um, I was the fight and intimacy director for Nandi Noy's Rage Play, which is essentially a play about sexism and <laughs> um, wow. misogyny and the rage um, society feels from that, particularly female identifying persons out there. Um, and it, I think, is brilliant and really fun. And it's, it's very, very disappointing that we close, especially being so close and having such wonderful rehearsal process um, that was really just like flourishing into this wonderful, wonderful production. But um, because we had to shut it down early, we were brainstorming together and having all those Zoom meetings about what we could do because we weren't necessarily satisfied with doing like a reading on Zoom because it's one of the, you know, this is why we do theater. It's a very visual and like um, the whole experience of, of being with an audience and watching um, these actors was actually a huge part of this play. So actually some of the things wouldn't have made sense necessarily in like a Zoom reading. So we, we came up with this idea of having like a behind the scenes um, making of the play thing where we will have like a Zoom presentation and there will be reading some excerpts, I could speak, excerpts. Um, but um, in the middle of those little excerpts, um, the designers will be talking about the process. So like the set designer is going to show his designs and the costume designer is going to talk about their process and I'm going to talk about my process um, and the lighting designer. So it's kind of actually really fun and exciting because you really get to see the stories of the designers and, and their approach to this work. I'm really excited to be able to do something that's um, a little different and um, still bringing people into the process and like curious about what it is going to become when we're able to get back into the world and, and do this show. That's so great that you're able to do this and, and share some element of the process with people. And probably also, I imagine, reach a wider audience potentially if it's going to be online that can certainly reach across the country in a way that in-person can't. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. Are you finding ways right now to um, be creatively engaged? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I'm taking an, an acting class, which has been really nice to feel like getting those gears going. You know, I'm work, I have a routine of like working out and meditating and all that stuff every day, which I didn't always get the opportunity before. Um, and uh I'm, I'm reading, which I also never do. 
I'm actually reading Michelle Obama's Becoming, which I've really, I've been wonderful, really happy about. I finally got to crack that open. Um, and you know what I've been doing that I feel like has been inspiring me um, is I have been watching a lot of RuPaul's Drag Race. Amazing. Yeah. And it is the most inspiring, uplifting thing I have seen in a really long time. And I highly recommend it for everybody on earth. <laughs> <laughs> Say more about why it's so inspiring. Um, there's just something about watching these male identifying humans create these big, bold, beautiful characters as women. And they're just so out there and so funny. And none of them really take themselves too seriously. Um, and the ones that do really quickly back off from doing that. And uh, it's also really beautiful seeing how seriously they take their, their gig, though. You know what I mean? And, and their personas and how much love and respect they have for those personas that they've created. Um, and it's also cool because there are like these challenges that are really, 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 really hard. And it's so impressive to see them, the outcome of these challenges and like how quickly they are on their feet. And like, I mean, they're like super, super humans. They're like creating their own garments and then they're like learning music. And then they're like sometimes memorizing lines and, you know, they sometimes they got to make up another person and, and then they got to like walk down and get judged by these judges. And it's just like really, really so fun to watch. Um, and, and just the side note that inspired me because now I'm obsessed with drag queens that inspired me to watch the HBO documentary series. We're here which is three of the drag green drag queens basically doing kind of like a two on fu and going to small towns and creating a drag show in small towns. And it's another really beautiful uplifting thing. And it's also just about acceptance and love and um, understanding. And it's, it's something that like, I really kind of needed. <laughs> I feel like we should ask this question in future podcasts. Like, what are you watching? What's inspiring you? <laughs> on tv because this is great <laughs> my answer would not be so eloquent because it's basically you know hgtv like all of those <laughs> which can also be inspiring it can inspired to to do remodeling in your homework right is that hq <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. just put more you know holes in my wall <laughs> <laughs> to build something Well, I think we can all use more inspiration and love no matter what, um, yeah. what form it takes. Folks, we're back. We're going to pick up from the top of Act 2. Top of Act 2. So you're also a teaching artist. Again, I don't know how yeah. you, you wear this many hats, but you're also a teaching artist. And last summer, you spent the summer with us in Rochester um, working with students in our summer academy program. And I, I'm curious, as you think about students that you've worked with over the years and in, in the various programs that you have been teaching in, are there any words of wisdom that you would have for them or for, um, for other people in this moment? Yeah, I think it's the advice I got, which is, you know, find that other thing you love because your career isn't everything. It's just a part of you. 
um, <clears throat> and watch RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Tack it on to every. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a really, really, you, you, you know why I say that as, as advice? Because it's really, really, really scary putting 100% into something. It is scary. And us as artists need to do that constantly. So watching marginalized, underrepresented people killing it and just like putting their all and like, see the results and how awesome it is i mean like that's what we do for people you know like what they're doing for people um and sometimes you gotta like see it to believe it you know what i mean like you gotta like watch what is capable in order to believe that you're capable so like that's that's important too you know that's why i gave that advice Looking forward right now, what do you think you will need in order to feel ready to get back into the rehearsal room and on the stage when we oh, what I would need? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> a vaccine. No. <laughs> hey, very that's real. Valid. That's <laughs> yeah, I'm a bit of a joke, sir. But a vaccine. Um, <laughs> I would need, um, man, in a way I can't wait. In a way I'd be like, you know, I'm like, I'm like, screw the vaccine. I'll get in there now. But, um, I, you know, what's funny is we were doing, I feel like in my, the rehearsal rooms I worked in, we always took care of one another. And I just hope that this brings an awareness of people just taking care of each other more, uh, taking care of themselves and their colleagues and, you know, you know what I mean? Just like people being more aware of other people's existence and feelings and, you know what I mean? Like not being so hard on ourselves, you know, like this has been a huge thing with like, I used to feel so guilty about doing nothing and like, I don't want to feel guilty about that anymore because now we're in this position where we can't really do anything, you know what I mean? <laughs> so I feel like it, yeah. what, what I want before I get in the rehearsal room is like just that kind of acknowledgement or understanding that like it's okay to take my time in the process. It's okay to feel safe in the process. Um, it's okay to speak and communicate um and yeah that's it but I, I can't wait you know and I, I you know and I'll joke it aside I do I do hope that there will be a vaccine you know like because I just want everyone in this world to feel safe and healthy and um okay with the human touch and human contact that's really important um but, you know, just taking care of each other and acknowledging that we need to take care of each other and that we'll do it. That's what I want going back into the rehearsal room. I think that's a, you know, sort of absolute necessity um, that that's how we work with each other. Yeah. Are there things right now that um, if a theater said to you, what do you need right now? 
not to go back into the theater, but just right now, what do you need to feel taken care of right now? How might you respond to that? Um, I need to know you're going to stay open. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I need to know that we will not only be supported in spirit, but financially. Um, I need to know that you won't, that there won't be any kind of skimming or or misstepping because of this either, I think. I would just want like that kind of guarantee um, in this moment in this very somber, sad moment, but (laughs) it is somber, sad. It's scary. It's all of those things. Yeah. It's all of those things. That's, that's what I would ask of theater right now. I would just be like, survive girl, survive. Yeah. Survive and thrive. That's what I want from the theater right now. I think we're all hoping and praying and doing our very best to do that so that we can all come back together and, you know, continue to work together and create new things and inspire and amaze people. I hope that happens. Yeah, it will. Rocio, thank you so much for doing this. Oh my God. Thank you so much for having me. This is so fun. It was a blast. Absolutely. Yeah. I love those moments of imagination of getting out of here. (laughs) I know there was this, this brief moment where it felt like we weren't stuck in our homes. (laughs) No, it was great. (laughs) I was was thinking about the flights I was going to buy. I know. (laughs) We're at a break when we're back. We'll be picking up from right where we left off. Out of the Rehearsal Hall is a podcast production of Jiva Theater Center in Rochester, New York. I'm Jenny Werner. And I'm Fran Dosilvera. Andrew Mark Wilhelm composed our theme song and is our audio engineer. Our artwork was created by graphic designer Amanda Rickson. Today's stage manager was Daniel Parker. I want to especially thank today's co-host, Fran Dasilvera, and today's guest, Rocio Mendez. If you've enjoyed listening to Out of the Rehearsal Hall, please consider leaving a review for us on your podcast platform or share the podcast with your friends. Find out more about Jiva at jivatheater.org. And there's more on our blog, jivajournal.wordpress.com. And we'll see you next time we're out of the rehearsal hall. That's all for today, folks. Thanks for all your hard work. Please check the call for specifics for tomorrow.